The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been inexcusably long since you and I have had a chance to address some of the environmental issues that are going on in the China-Africa space, and there has been a lot going on. It finally kind of just built up this week. There's so many things to talk about that we said, okay, we finally got to get back on this track because it is so important. Let me just run through just four or five of the news items that have crossed just this past week or two which will help set up our discussion and give you an idea of all the different things that are going on. Last week, there was a very high-profile crackdown on illegal small miners, small-scale miners in Ghana, known as the Galamse. Uh, The Ghanaian government dispatched the military. 200 soldiers participated in what was called Operation Halt, where they ventured out into the countryside looking at how the Galamse are polluting rivers in particular. Two Chinese miners were arrested on the Pra River. People were surprised that more Chinese were not arrested in that, given how many Chinese are involved in the small-scale mining trade in Ghana. Also in Ghana, the former lands minister, uh, Inusa Fuseni, he spoke at a conference last week about the illegal trade of rosewood. And here's what was interesting. He was very direct. And he had a lot of acting government officials on the stage with him. And he called them out for the fact that Rosewood, even though it was banned when he was in office, is still finding its way into China through the black market. And he called on regulatory authorities and the security services, again, to do more to stop the trade. So once again, they want to bring a more of a uh, of the military and the police to get involved in the illegal trade of Rosewood. Now, the military is also coming up in Nigeria, where the Nigeria's House of Representatives, they issued a motion uh, last week uh, to call on the federal government to crack down on illegal fishing in the Gulf of Guinea, and they singled out the Chinese role in the illegal fishing trade. But not only the Chinese, they also highlighted trawlers from Spain, also the Netherlands, but they really singled out the Chinese. And and they reported that $70 million a year is lost to illegal fishing. And that's really a drain on the economy because not only are they not generating that revenue for the local fishing communities, but they have to spend that money to import fish from overseas. So it's destructive in lots of different ways. Just like in Ghana, the House of Representatives called on the Nigerian military, in this case the Navy, to do more to help crack down on illegal fishing. That will make its way through the Nigerian legislative process and into the office of President Buhari. But again, fishing is on the agenda and what the Chinese are doing in the Gulf of Guinea. Finally, last point, South Africa. Kobus, this is your neighborhood. Uh, Environment Minister Barbara Creasy, she announced plans to end the breeding of all lions for trophy hunting. Now, if you're not familiar with what they do in this trophy hunting business, it's mind-numbingly disgusting and sick. But what they do is they breed lions to basically be raised in a pen, and then they release them into a confined environment, and 
people go with guns and shoot them. It's mind-boggling that that's a thing, but there we are. They're canceling it, and finally, but that has an impact on China in part because the trade of lion bones, also from lions raised in captivity, will be impacted by that. So, Cobus, while there's a lot going on in the environmental space, it doesn't seem that all of this is happening at the policy level between the Chinese government and African governments. It's happening at the national level in Africa. CSOs, civil society organizations, environmental activists, they're all very concerned about what's happening. But it's not happening as much at the policy level, at least as far as I can see. Yes, this I think the the policy level is is the real is the real prize, and it's it's very difficult to 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 get action there. Um, you know, like I would add to to your list of of, of news points that the, there was also a very big report came, that that came out. Um, I think from Forests and Finance, it's a, it's a kind of a collective of, of NGOs, this week showing that China is this Chinese banks are the second largest um, funders of 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 industries that lead to deforestation. So these include rubber, um, palm oil, and, you know, kind of other kinds of that that particularly uh, impact tropical rainforests. Um, so the, the, what was interesting for me um, was that the largest funder was actually a national funder, Brazil. So that is, the, like, Brazil, in, in terms of, like, kind of, you know, attacking its own its own Amazon rainforest, you know, kind of is, is the largest funder of the of these industries, but China, in, in as, as a worldwide funder, is number two, um, to the tune of $15 billion a year, apparently. Um, so this is, you know, kind of this. This is, is one of those kind of data points that that will have to kind of force a, a larger kind of conversation about the role of Chinese banks in the world. And one other data point before we get into our discussion and open it up with our guests is about the East African crude oil pipeline, which is a Franco-Chinese venture to transport crude oil from Uganda to the ports to a ports in Tanzania. This has been very, very controversial. It's a $3.5 billion pipeline, about 1,400 kilometers long. Lots of excitement in Uganda and Tanzania at the government level, but not at the civil society level. Environmental activists are outraged by it because they say the construction of the pipeline will impact water supplies. It's bad for climate change and it's displacing uh, hundreds of people in local communities. Interesting enough, French President Emmanuel Macron, he came out this week and really threw his weight behind it, even though three of France's largest banks have backed away from it because of environmental concerns. But no indication right now whether Sinuk, the Chinese partner on the East African crude oil pipeline, is holding firm. They are staying firm for now. But we've seen in the past with the Lamu coal plant, that Chinese banks can sometimes, and Chinese oil companies, can sometimes be more sensitive now to these environmental issues than they were a few years ago. Okay, so lots to talk about today. What we wanted to do today is bring you both an African perspective and a Chinese perspective on some of these issues. And for that, we are thrilled to have two amazing journalists with us to break down some of these different issues that we've raised and some of the issues that they're following in their reporting. Let's start in Cape Town with Tena Giuse, who is a contributing editor on the Africa desk at the environmental news site Manga Bay. And he joins us on the line from Cape Town. A very good afternoon to you, Tana. Thanks so much. How's it going, Eric? It's going great. We're really excited to have you on the show. I'm a big fan of everything that Manga Bay does. So this is the first time that we've had that opportunity to talk with somebody from Manga Bay. So that's fantastic. Also, let's go now to Beijing, where Zhang Zhu is joining us again for the first time in five years. Zhu is a journalist who was written previously for Caixin Weekly. Also, she was the former Nairobi correspondent for Phoenix Television, which is a TV network based out of Hong Kong. 
Zhang, and she's also written for the environmental website China Dialogue, and she does a lot of environmental coverage. Uh, Zhu, welcome back to the program. Can't believe it's been five years already. Thank you, Eric and Kobus, for inviting well, we asked both Tsuju and Tena to give us some of their key issues that they're following. We're going to go one by one through the topics that they want to discuss and then throw in some of these other issues that Kobus and I addressed at the beginning of the show. Uh, Tsuju, let's start with you. You identified Chinese investment in coal. You've talked about how there is speculation that the Chinese will end some of the financing for overseas coal projects. At this point, that has not been official. There's a lot of concern about the Senghua coal power plant in Zimbabwe. Also, the fact that the Chinese are rebuilding the Huangwei uh, coal power plant in Zimbabwe as well. And given the fact that there is so much attention paid to emissions and the climate change right now, there's a lot of concern about what role China is playing in coal-fired power plants, not only in Africa, but throughout the global south. Talk to us a little bit about what your concern and what the issues you're following with regards to Chinese investment in coal. Right. So um, thank you, Eric, for bringing up that topic. But I have to say what I feel about the issue of coal in China is that the um, topic of coal is still quite a sensitive topic. I don't see clear consensus between, say, policymakers, researchers, and the public on how should we achieve this, you know, carbon neutrality via reducing the use of coal. So when the problem comes to China's international investments, I think there has been a lot of speculation that, you know, China uh, would end finance in um, overseas coal projects. And the reason is, um, you know, first of all, we have seen the past few years, a lot of developed countries, especially, you know, um, led by EU, has made strong commitments to, you know, stop financing new coal projects and then uh, gradually, you know, reduce the, 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 the construction and use of uh, coal power plant. In, in regard to the, you know, upcoming forecast, I think we, like many countries would, you know, expect China to be more clear on where this overseas investment on coal project will go, you know, because like domestically, the, the attitude is um, not clear enough. And then, you know, internationally is even, you know, blurred. You know, at least I hope China would in the coming years or, you know, in the next FOCAC will at least talk up a little bit about, you know, the issue. So the FOCAC that Zhu referenced is the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. That is the triennial summit of African leaders together with the Chinese. This year it's going to happen in Senegal. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know if it's going to happen in real life. Interestingly enough, in the last FOCAC, there wasn't a very strong environmental theme that was there. In previous FOCACs, ivory was a major issue. So it will be very interesting if this year environmental issues do get back on the agenda. Uh, but at this point, I'm not that optimistic. But uh, Kobus, over to you. Tana, um, you, one of the topics you mentioned was is fisher, fisheries. So as Eric mentioned at the top, there, there's now you know a campaign gathering speed in, in Nigeria um, and particularly also, you know, attempts in Nigeria to try, to try and kind of focus the attention on the impact on GDP um, and, uh, you know, kind of and, and, and kind of profit on the national level. But you pointed out that it also is having a lot of impacts on the local community level, um, including other like, like additional knock on environmental impacts. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. 
I tend to skip past a lot of the a lot of the discussion on the level of GDP and policy because I'm much more interested in what's actually happening on the ground because in so many parts I mean I grew up in Nigeria myself and in so many parts of West Africa I feel like there's there's a policy there's a policy level but because the state is often so weak in terms of enforcement it's very very important what's actually happening on the ground um irrespective of what's being said or what's being planned or what's being discussed above their heads. Um, fisheries in West Africa has, you know, I mean, offshore, you know, like there's been international fleets have been operating off the coast of West Africa for quite a long time with regards to fisheries. Um, and increasingly in the stories we hear about Chinese fishing fleets. And I'm also very cautious about the prominence that Chinese, the impact of Chinese fishing fleets is, you know, what's the impact there because it also feels like it's it's overlooking editors are and I'm an editor myself editors are like this we've already heard the story about the EU fishing fleet so we don't talk about them anymore even though they're still there um, but in terms of impacts what's really happened is that for artisanal fishers of almost any species you can imagine whether it's larger you know larger larger fish or the kind of the mainstay in terms of protein for people is smaller things like little it's small sardines and and even smaller species is there's much much less of that available and it could be for a variety of reasons sometimes it's 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 uh, it may be related to changes in water temperature and climate but there's clearly um, there's clearly an impact from industrial fishing offshore and in Ghana in Senegal in Gambia it's also, they're now competing also with international fleets and specifically there's specific in Gambia. And for, for instance, we just published a story about the, with, there's a, there's a couple of Chinese companies that have set up fish meal um, processing, which means that they're competing for exactly the same fish. And it's, it's also kind of rubbing it in the faces of the locals that they can't find fish in the water anymore. They actually are, there's been some direct clashes with, with uh, Chinese trawlers offshore in terms of like actually being harassed and having water sprayed on them and things of that nature. Plus there's fish meal factories right there, which of course people are also saying are employing only Chinese and Senegalese and not locals. Um, so there's quite a lot of tension there um, in terms of access to fisheries and declining fisheries and you know Chinese fishing fleets come up in every single story, fairly or unfairly, they're seen as having an enormous impact on what's going on. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's a story we've covered very closely over the past year or so. In particular, last year, there was a lot of debate over the role of Chinese illegal fishing or Chinese trawlers coming into ports in West Africa. And it showed that there's a lot of variety in how different governments deal with this. So both Liberia and Senegal were very strict on the licensing. And they did what looked like a very good job at evaluating the size of the Chinese trawlers and whether or not their waters were sustainable to, to, to support them. Meantime, in Ghana, it just seems like it's fubar. It seems like it's a complete mess. And corruption seems endemic. Are you seeing the fact that these big differences in governance in different West African countries affects the presence of the Chinese fishing fleets that are there? I don't know how I would really assess that um, short of, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone's really assessed that because there's, there's very different things in terms of what people say. But my impression is that the capacity to really monitor what's going on, especially when you have transshipment offshore of catches that then go into, you know, into refrigerated boats, it's very, very difficult to know for certain how different the actual impacts in terms of what's going on are. And given that it's more or less, you know, it's the same handful of large companies that are involved, whether it's in Gambia and Senegalese or Ghanaian waters, I'd be surprised if their habits are actually that different 
across, you know, across the different jurisdictions. But I wonder if the fact that the Gulf of Guinea now is considered to be the most dangerous waterway in the world because of piracy and Chinese fishing vessels have been attacked repeatedly by pirates. And I'm wondering if the fact that the presence of the pirates may actually do something to help the fish. Because if it's too dangerous to go out fishing <laughs> for fear of being attacked by the pirates, well, then that might be a blessing for the fish. <laughs> pirates pirates have, have long protected waterways from all sorts of comers. Um, it's an interesting question. I don't know. I, I, I mean, there's certainly still a strong presence offshore. Um, and I think there's the Gulf of Guinea and then there's, you know, further up the coast, like further out towards Senegal and Gambia, I think is quite a different story. And I would... I mean, it's not something I've really looked at, but I have always understood, I mean, it's a Nigerian bias. I've understood the pirates to be mostly interested in the clearly wealthy, um, you know, the, in the clear benefits of, of taking on, take, of, it's the oil industry really that attracts that kind of thing. And so I'm, I don't know. I've, I actually hadn't followed pirate attacks against uh, Chinese fishing vessels. How well have they done out of, those, out of those boardings or how well have they done out of that would be, I was very interested actually to find out what impact that's having. Yeah, the Chinese are reportedly paying ransoms, and that is just like a moth to a flame. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's the beginning of a bad thing. Zaju, you you know, we, we were talking about the, the the this kind of like impact on the on the community level. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, that there's an interest in the Lamu case. Um, in, and just for, for for listeners who haven't been keeping up with this, um, it's it's it was a a, a coal powered um, a purported coal a coal powered plant that that, that was was raised um, and then defeated in the Kenyan courts by a a, a group of community um, a gr- community groups and NGOs. Um, so I was wondering. You, you mentioned that there's 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 this discussion about um, ways to try and kind of give a, a, a stronger community voice in um, in these kind of project pro processes and project approval processes. Um, can you talk a little bit about what some of the options are there? Like how how you know kind of how is it how should we go about trying to kind of pull more community engagement in um, into these projects? So um, from my my perspective, I I think you know clearly in the Lamu case, I think the communication between Chinese company and, you know, African communities is not sufficient. Because I remember when I was there in Kenya in 2016, the contract was signed already if I, you know, if, if I didn't get it wrong. But then I didn't think at that time, you know, it hadn't caught enough attention from uh, from the China side until the thing became, you know, bigger and bigger, you know, when, when you know, when there was like, you know, local protest and, uh, you know, people really voicing out the concerns about the, you know, construction of, you know, of that plant. In, in regarding to, you know, solutions, from what I've observed, I think domestically, a lot of researchers and NGO environmentalists have really tried to, try to advise the government to come up with uh, some kind of mechanism or, you know, methodologies to flag out the, the environmental risk of this coal power plant before those projects being financed and being constructed. Um, so last year, at the end of last year, I have seen the um, the BRR International Green Green Development Coalition. They published a report and recommended a classification methodology to use a, a what they call a, a, a traffic light system. What that means is that the um, the traffic light system is a, a methodology for Chinese overseas projects. Those projects.
projects will be given ratings based on the impacts of pollution, climate change, and you know biodiversity. So coal projects will be given red ratings, and you can't upgrade it uh, with you know mitigation you know measures. So that's the research finding, and that's only at a, you know policy recommendation level at the moment. But if that can be put into effect, then that could be some sort of you know mechanism to monitor uh, the impact of coal projects. I hope that Chinese NGO will continue to uh, write articles and to sort of to send messages to the Chinese public uh, and um, you know companies, you know financiers, and um, you know as well as you know policymakers to tell them what's the you know potential risk of this kind of projects and how that would damage you know China's efforts to you know mitigate climate change and then you know establish establish this global leadership in uh, the combat against climate change. But then I think it's a process. Maybe 10, 20 years ago, a lot of Chinese people don't know what climate change is. And then a couple of years ago, after the COPE in Paris, like although the whole world have already formed a consensus on the you know 1.5 degree global warming threshold, but then I think in China, there's still uh, lack of consensus on you know this kind of concepts. So I think it takes time for the Chinese stakeholder to realize like the damages that coal costs to the environment. It's huge, and they need to be need to be avoided. And eventually, you know, we hope you know eventually they will phase out coal projects from the from the Chinese you know overseas you know investment you know system. Tina, so Zhejiu was talking a lot about the role of NGOs in raising awareness about what the Chinese are doing, maybe not very much in Africa, but certainly in Southeast Asia, where I am right here. When when you're in South Africa, which probably has the strongest network of NGOs anywhere on the continent, are you hearing in the discussions among NGOs about the role of the Chinese, the Belt and Road, these issues related to coal or to wildlife trade and whatnot? What role is the Chinese, if at all, coming up in some of the narratives that the NGO community is talking about in South Africa? Hmm, it's a good question. I mean, when I was listening, I was just thinking about how something like Lamu is almost it's a bit of a it's it's a it's a magnet and it was a great site for organizing for NGOs, I think, because it was easy to enlist support from a wide range of places. And I think that's more complicated with some other things, like for example, with timber or deforestation or fisheries, because it doesn't have doesn't have a it doesn't have a clear single target it doesn't fit into every single it's not as easy to drop it into something like the consensus over the 1.5 limit for global warming um i i really feel as though the my the impression that i get when we interview civil society in south africa and elsewhere is that no one really has a clue how one influences chinese government policy Everyone knows what the pathways are if you want to get hold of a, you know, a big bank in Europe. Everyone knows where, not that you can make it happen, but you at least know who you contact and who you call if you're trying to get, you know, and who you mobilize on that side. But I feel like a combination of not knowing who do you speak to if you're trying to influence policy in, you know, with that's, you know, in China or even the connections with NGOs in China, I think are lacking. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why, I don't, I haven't come across as many NGOs who think of, you know, they, you rather, if, if there's something going on, you rather target the, you target your local government, you target the company right here where you see it, as opposed to making any kind of links with civil society in China or with NGOs in China or directly with the Chinese government. I don't know if that makes sense. 
Kobus, this is the same thing that we're hearing over and over and over again. So there's an information gap that's here among African NGOs or South African NGOs and understanding how to engage the Chinese system. We've seen that in a number of different verticals. And it's an issue that we brought up a while ago in terms of building relationships with Chinese stakeholders. And it doesn't seem like, as from what Tana's saying, that NGOs have taken the time and the effort to make those relationships with the Chinese embassy, with Chinese companies, Chinese actors and whatnot. And there's a real gap that's there. This is an enormous opportunity. Yeah, you know, kind of, and I think what we'll probably see or what we'll hopefully see is that they'll um, they'll merge a new kind of a class of, of NGO of of people who 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 focus on making those connections, on on building bridges between those different different communities. But who's going to do that? Who would do that? Because we don't have those bridge builders right now, as far as I can see. I mean, those would probably be an, a, a, another class of NGO. You know, kind of like a, NGOs focused on that particular issue, um, the way that China House has done in in Kenya, for example. You know, I think uh, I think that there's a, there's massive space there for um, for Chinese NGOs and you know to 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 do the some of that work, um, and I think. The you know as 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 there's more I, I think a lot of it depends on on the level of awareness within China about the kind of pushback from communities in other parts of the world around some of these projects which which as the Jew has pointed out is, you know takes a, takes a while to to accrue yeah I just wanted to jump in I really strongly agree I think that an entirely I think that NGOs are and civil society are very much creatures of habit I mean I spent some time working in the NGO world and so it is you know it's to people don't want to be out of their depth and also really. I think that an entirely like entirely new NGOs who have taken from the beginning have taken an understanding like developing an understanding of how things actually work in China is really going to be the key to this because I think existing NGOs just don't know and they're intimidated and sealed out and busy with something else rather than actually figuring that out. Okay, let's put that question now to Zhu. Zhu, so there's a gap right now between uh, African stakeholders of all sorts and engaging the Chinese government, corporations, NGOs, and whatnot. What Tana's saying is that the NGOs don't know how to approach their Chinese counterparts. What would you recommend, based on your experience living in, in Kenya and on all your coverage that you've done over the years of environmental issues, for, the, for African NGOs to better engage their Chinese counterparts? What would you recommend? How do they get started? Um, I think, you know, you know, because in China, the um, those kind of campaign and protest to through like using those means to voice concern is not really a viable uh, means. So and then um, what I have seen, for example, you know, when I was in Kenya back in 2016 and 2017, uh, what, I have, what, what happened with the um, Nairobi, Nairobi Mombasa Railroad, um, I have, I mean, I have seen the same problems that the, um, you know, constructor of the project CRBC, they are not very very good at dealing with local communities. And then when the criticism came, I mean, they instantly wanted to jump away rather than face the, uh, the criticism directly. But is there a way to overcome that? Because that's the traditional response that Chinese state companies have. But what we're trying to do is get past that. Is there a way to build relationships, to build trust, to open pathways of communication? Or is that impossible? 
although not many not many Chinese NGOs have the capacity or have the knowledge to work in Africa, but I definitely think there are some you know international NGOs they paid attention to you know what happened in you know in Africa and then they have bigger power to send out you know briefs or you know policy advice to the uh, to to the government level um, in China. So I think that could be a um, um, viable option for the short term, and I think long term um, I think the if China can really the, you know, at the government level, if China can really establish some kind of mechanism or like a dialogue platform that allow the local community to either directly or indirectly to communicate with the you know decision makers, um, and or even sort of appeal to the you know Chinese governmental bodies when there is environmental consequences to you know local communities like caused by Chinese projects, you know this kind of exchange of information and you know exchange of perspectives can become more effective and more efficient. Yeah, I mean, here's a question for all three of you, really, is what's in it for Chinese companies to pay more attention to local communities? Because, and I'm thinking about this in context, for example, of, I don't know, like, it's not, you know, the problem of of being able to influence what happens on the ground through companies or through governments is not limited to China. If we look at, I don't know, tuna fisheries or fisheries in general, Because the companies that do fishing are not particularly vulnerable, as far as I can tell, whether they're from the EU or China, they're not vulnerable to their shareholders being upset about what's going on. They're not really vulnerable. They're not, you know, it's not a reputational issue for them where your tuna comes from, for the most part. They're not, you know, it's very difficult to engage with them as NGOs or local communities because there's nothing at stake for them if you send them, they don't need to listen to your brief for the most part. They're not afraid of the impacts. So I'm trying to understand better what, like, where are the actual points of leverage um, that would compel, like, what makes a, a Chinese, com- uh, Chinese company, whether it's fishing or building a railway or timber, like, what makes, what are they actually vulnerable to and what's in it for them to pay closer attention to local communities? Well, I, I think, you know, one, one, one is kind of ease of doing business, particularly, on, you know, on, on the ground, um, you know, so, so it's not, not as much kind of reputational damage among, among their, um, their customers or, or, or shareholders, but, but also the, you know, the kind of impacts that, that hit their, their actual operations on the ground, um, you know, so, so kind of community pushback on, on those issues um, and, and possibly the state getting, getting involved, you know, kind of is, is, is one kind of point of friction. I mean, this is one of the points of obviously of, of working in Africa is that frequently the state is so weak that that isn't so, so much of a of, of a of an issue. Um, but you know, in, in, in we have, we have seen you know South South Africa is a great example. Like you know, so South African communities are very very poor and very disempowered. But at the same time, when they protest, they they can really cause a lot of disruption. Um, you know, like you you frequently see in South Africa entire highways blocked by by protesting communities um, with with kind of traffic you know in, in all directions. So that kind of on the ground guerrilla protest does have an impact. Um, but you know, it's it's uh, you know as you say, it's 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 very difficult to actually make make these companies feel it. A couple different things here, and let's look at what's happened in the past. So uh, Ivory is a great example as a case study, and one of the things that happened there was the fact that international NGOs like Wild Aid and Traffic worked very closely with the Chinese government. They were not attacking the Chinese government. And because the Chinese are very, very good at putting up their defenses if they feel they're under assault. So if NGOs or activists come at the Chinese hard, that probably won't work. 
So what worked in Ivory was the collaborative approach that international NGOs did with local NGOs and mobilized populations of young people, particularly in China, to rally on that issue. That was something that was driven by a lot, in many cases, by domestic pressure, which was very interesting on that. The other thing is to, if you want to name and shame, is to take Chinese language specifically from their own agreements. And I've been highlighting section 3.5.6 of the 2018 FOCAC action plan. Let me quote this to you. This was written by the Chinese, mind you, okay, in in the FOCAC action plan. China supports Africa in the capacity building of maritime law enforcement and environment protection to ensure the security of maritime resources and promote maritime development and cooperation and the promotion of, here we go, sustainable approaches that are environmentally, socially, and economically effective through the blue economy. And I think there's a really good case to be made that the Chinese have not lived up to section 3.5.6. And I would like to see more NGOs really just make a big poster board of that mm. and say, is the illegal Chinese fishing fleets that are the distant fishing fleets that are off the coast of Mozambique, the illegal fishing that's done off the coast of West Africa, the illegal abalone trade in South Africa, the donkey trade, uh, which is not which is not maritime, but it's still part of the is sustainable environment. All of that has not lived up to the spirit or the letter of what they agreed to in the FOCAC action plan. So in this case, this is where we have to get African governments involved. And I am just blown away, by the way, that not a single African government has spoken forcefully against the Chinese on the donkey skin trade. Kobus made a very good point that the, the Chinese are super good at blocking imports of ivory, of, 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 of rhino horn now, but somehow, magically, donkey skins are just floating through into China, into the Ejiao market. And that's the Chinese traditional medicine market. And I think these inconsistencies have to be brought to the Mm. fore that almost embarrasses the local embassy so that they have to do something. So again, I'm contradicting myself. On the one hand, I'm saying, don't come at them too hard, but come at them on their own language. This was Chinese language in their own agreement. So Ju, what would you recommend in terms of how to motivate the Chinese to take action in, in, in getting them to be more engaged, what would be some catalyst that you think uh, people could do? You mean to, to mobilize the, the Chinese public or the... Just to get a response on some things, because what Tana is saying is there's no cost to anybody. A Chinese state-owned enterprise, CRBC, China Road and Bridge Corporation, you're not going to, to shame them into action because they're so big and their stakeholders really aren't responsive to the kinds of pressures that Tana's talking about. So it could be the state-owned enterprises, it could be the Chinese public, but how do you actually get the Chinese to be interested, involved, and to take action on some of these issues? I think this is a very hard question because a lot of, uh, you know, probably people working on the issue or, you know, including NGO, they're trying to, um, they, they try very hard to find a way to to talk this company through and then make them aware the local community's benefits are at stake. I think, I mean, I have seen examples of like, you know, NGOs, they can go into, say, um, you know, African countries and they can, you know, mobilize, you know, f- you know, for example, I think if I didn't remember wrong, I think WWF have done something like uh, maybe back in 2012 or, or even before that, um, they have done things in countries like, you know, Gabon, they try to mobilize and, and talk to the uh, Chinese loggers there and then ask them to make commitment to the, you know, local community, you know, because they would have 
host like you know workshop to um, give them an opportunity to learn about the you know international regulations and then uh, what's the benefit for them to do so. And then I think that's better for private companies, you know, um, like smaller sized, and then you can find the the person in charge, and then you know if you can build a relationship with that person, then things can get easier. But with state-owned comp- with you know state-owned enterprises, I think the problem's always about the internal structures being too bureaucratic, and then not just the um, sort of company itself has no interest, you know, because they they are there to you know make money. But then also like internally, there's no interest for any single staff to pay attention to you know this kind of thing. I don't have a very good solution at the moment because this has been ongoing discussions, and then I haven't seen any substantial progress happening in the past few years. What I've hoped, you know, again, um, I think at the you know state-owned uh, enterprises level, I, I I just really hope that the leader in those companies, uh, you know, when the pressure's coming from top down, and then they realize if they have done something that could damage their you know own reputation, that will have a consequences and. They need to be aware of that. Yeah, I wanted to ask both of you, um, what kind of action or what kind of progress are you seeing in um, on the much wider level in terms of in terms of finding ways for for governments to to articulate and quantify the entire value of an entire ecosystem rather than the wood or the animals or the you know the minerals under the ground like you know what kind of progress are you seeing on on moving towards finding a way of thinking about the the, the way that that the an, an entire intact ecosystem is so much more valuable in terms of long-term product development around pharmaceuticals for example around kind of wellness and and superfoods and all of these you know kind of like future covid cures and so on um you know that that kind of future economic value of 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 an of an intact ecosystem how much kind of progress are you seeing in 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 valuing that kind of value compared to what you can make in the short term by just selling the trees well, I hate to hate to sound negative, but I'm not seeing that progress on the level of governments. I think all the pressures to make budgets happen and to, you know, make projects happen, I think they they push in the opposite direction. No, I mean the problem is, you know, governments everywhere are, are you know, they're they're really under pressure to come up with money to deliver things. And also in some ways also under pressure to come up with money that they can, in some cases, there's also a corruption element. But I think the fundamental issue is like, if you know, I think that what's, what governments aren't able to quantify, monetize, capitalize on um, is just really difficult for them to, I, I just feel like it doesn't get, it doesn't get out of the first discussions. Um, so people can sort of do things with like a carbon credit, some carbon credit schemes try to take that into account because they, you know, they, they come up with a variety of ways to account for the value of keeping an intact ecosystem versus, you know, what can this many cubic meters of wood do, but it's really not, I mean, it all comes down to commodifying and monetizing, um, on the level of NGOs, obviously there's lots of thinking of that, but I feel like there's a lot of work to be done to really to really have that that broader sense that sense of ecological value that you're talking about i don't really see it happening yeah i think i'm sort of 
equally pessimistic. I think this problem with um, how to realize the long-term value of uh, you know nature and the ecosystem. I think I've seen this um, not just on the topic of climate change, but also like ocean conservation, you know, forest conservation. You know, like in China, I think when I often you know interview policy experts and academics, I think there's no clear consensus on what's the relations between conservation and development. And then very often you like you know people thought that's an old debate. We we should have you know move forward beyond that. But then what I have seen is there are still a lot of people think that you know you know development should come first, and then you know um, there's a sharp line you know dividing the conservation and development uh, concepts in China. So I think you know there's a lot of things should be done in raising awareness of the public, and then the government started to like do something that will actually you know affect people's life. You know for example China. China initiated this, you know, plastic ban. Although we haven't seen the full impact of that, but then that will be something that, um, you know, impact people's, you know, e- like you know, everyday life. We we hope that people will, you know, gradually, you know, understand the value of the ecosystem. But I think that will be a very long process. So we're going to end our conversation on a rather down note, but that is just the nature of what it is today. And we didn't have a chance to talk about the impact that COVID's having in all of this. But I think Tana, to your point. That COVID is just going to add more pressure on governments to try and make up the losses with development that may not be as clean as all of us want it to be, simply because they need to find any way possible to either build the infrastructure or generate the revenue. I want to thank both of you for taking the time to join us. Uh, Tena Guse is a contributing editor on the Africa Desk at the environmental news site Manga Bay, and he joins us from Cape Town. Tena, if people want to follow Manga Bay, Manga or Mongo Bay? Am I getting it right? I keep thinking of Manga, the Japanese cartoon, the anime cartoons. <laughs> it's in between the two. It's Manga, M-O-N-G-A-B-A-Y.com. I always get that confused, but it's a good way to remember what an excellent site. You guys must get... A lot of people who are very disillusioned when they come up to your site through search thinking they're going to find Japanese cartoons. But if people want to follow what you guys are writing and reading these days and what you're publishing, where can they find you again? It's uh, news.mongabay.com. So M-O-N-G-A-B-A-Y.com. And you can also find us on Twitter if you just look up mongabay.com and pretty much everything we put out will flag also there. So it's a good way to, to know when we publish new things. Fantastic. I'll put some of that in the show notes. And also Zhang Zizhu is a journalist based in Beijing. I will put links to a lot of her previous writing for China Dialogue. She's been on our show before. I'll put all of that in the show notes as well. She's done some great reporting. Uh, Zizhu, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to share some of your insights on, on what's going on in China and the way that the Chinese are approaching some of these issues. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric and Kobus, for time. Thanks for having us on. Kobus Tana's comments at the end were very revealing about the challenge that lays ahead of us. And the fact is, is that there are not pathways for development and for conversation here on these very important issues, simply because it does not look like that African leaders are taking up the mantle to raise these issues with their counterparts in Beijing. It just doesn't look like that's a, it's on their priority list. For years, these issues of the Galamse in Ghana illegal fishing in Nigeria, rosewood shipments out of Gabon, the abalone trade, the donkey skin trade, whether rhino horn, lion bone, you name it. It's not been put front and center as a critical development issue in the FOCAC agenda. 
And I don't really understand why, because if African leaders actually put this forward, they would build a lot of credibility with their own people. But maybe that's not the priority. They don't give a crap about their own people. I don't know. But it's just surprising me a lot that year after year after year, these environmental issues go unaddressed. And if it's not being done at the state level, as Tana pointed out, it can't be done in the civil society level because people just don't know where to start. And China's a little bit of a black box there. Yeah, the uh, you know, I, you know, my my perspective is is a very South African one, um, and there's a there's a South African kind of saying that the the only thing that the government can hear is smoke, which means that when people burn stuff, that's when the government pays attention. Um, you know, so so you know, and 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 this is just <laughs> the way that South Africa works. Um, and you know, but I think this is increasingly the way it's it's going to start working around these issues. You know, kind of I think I think. There, there's there's very little kind of like of avenues left open be, for anything beyond kind of like community direct action, and on some of these issues, and you know, and and as as we've seen, you know, in, in cases like Lamu, for example, that could that that can also translate into things like legal action, you know, which which was effective. So, um, but yeah, I agree with you. It's it's a pretty kind of bleak situation at the moment, and I think I think that there's this split between the the this this kind of like very kind of 20th century idea of like conservation as this as a separate thing from development, that that is still a very dominant way of thinking in Africa too. And with that comes the idea that 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 you know of 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 ecosystems as natural resources, you know, that need to be used as in 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 a kind of a bigger national development drive. So, yep, you know, very difficult. And and you know, I think I think a lot of this kind of work of this this kind of rethinking these things, a lot of that is actually coming out of academia. But of course, it takes years and years for for that kind of academic work to to filter down. But it was interesting what Sergio brought up and when she said that a lot of Chinese stakeholders still see a difference between sustainability and development. And I will tell you here in Southeast Asia, sustainability and, and conservation are still considered to be luxurious issues. They're, the priority right now is on raising the per capita income from $10 a day, more or less, to $12 a day. And whatever it takes to do that, we'll do it. And again, I've seen my air quality here in Vietnam go down over the years. And we've seen the water quality and we've seen all of the development problems that China went through are starting to happen here. Because there's that mindset that says we are simply not wealthy enough to think about conservation that way. So there is a disconnect and that's not uniquely a Chinese thing. I also want to bring up the point that I think a lot of Europeans and Americans get on a high and mighty horse when it comes to the Chinese and environmental issues in Africa. And this is not meant to be whataboutism, but maybe it is. If it is whataboutism, okay, we'll just kind of tack it up to that. But it was interesting that Emmanuel Macron is the one who is pushing so hard right now for the ECOP pipeline in East Africa. Okay? I mean, that is about as hostile to climate change as you're going to get. The extraction of oil plowing through two countries affecting water supplies. I mean, it's literally the worst thing for climate change you can possibly imagine. And here is the French president rallying from it. When we were talking about Lamu last year or two years ago, who was it that was advocating for coal but Kyle McCarter, the U.S. ambassador? Because Trump was a huge supporter of coal. So it's not always that the, that the U.S. and Europe are sitting on the angel's side here. And I think that's a really <laughs> important distinction to make. And Macron yeah. is just the latest. But the French have been involved in, in, in horrific resource extraction in Africa to this day for centuries. 
And the legacy of that is really important to really bring up to the fore. That is, this is not uniquely a Chinese issue. Yeah, no, 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 not at all. Um, and in fact, you know, kind of this, so like, I mean, Europe's Europe's kind of complicity in, in the destruction of African environments go back 500 years and it's still going strong um and you know so 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 kind of hearing kind of all of these this very kind of pious language coming out of europe and the u.s um and so on is rich like it's really yeah. it's, it's risible take it with um, a grain of salt yeah you know kind of like the, these these governments yeah you know are extremely destructive and on on these on this on these counts you know kind of and, and they yeah they deserve a lot of a lot of kind of a lot harder pushback than they're getting i hope that in the Folk Act this year, that they do bring up environmental issues. I'm kind of skeptical because I think the focus is going to be so much on economic recovery in the post-pandemic era. I think it's going to be on digital Silk Road, health Silk Road. And once again, just like in 2018, we're going to see environmental issues shunted to the side. That's my that's my prediction. I, I just don't see a very strong lobby on the Chinese side that's doing it. There was this always this sense, and we've talked about this in previous shows, that we banned ivory, we're good, everything's been solved on the environmental side, fine. Because that really hasn't been an issue since ivory that the Chinese have valued as much on the sustainability side. Is there one? I can't think of any that they have really prized as much as on the ivory issue. Yeah, not that it's gotten kind of, you know, there's, there's been several issues that, that have gotten kind of like pushed from the African side, but not the kind of reciprocation from the Chinese side. Nope, certainly not fishing. Again, fishing, donkeys, rhino, pangolins, pangolins abalone. These are all issues that are going largely un, unmet. And I don't expect FOCAC to be the venue where they do that. Also because I don't expect African leaders to have the cojones to actually raise these issues. They are really eager to see if there's ways to get Chinese financing for infrastructure and for all of the other economic issues that Tana pointed out. And I think that's going to be the big priority. So Unfortunately, we we don't have a lot of good news here. And going back to your column in the newsletter from a couple of weeks ago about the the University of Cape Town library fire. Was that correct? It was University of Cape Town, correct? Yeah. And you put the responsibility squarely at the feet of the big powers, namely the United States and China. Why? Because Cape Town is one of the most sensitive kind of indicator areas for climate change in the world. Um, you know, kind of it has an extremely unique and sensitive environment um, in, in which fire, a cyclical fire is, is, a, is a part of that environmental process. So the, watching Cape Town's, you know, kind of environmental cycle go high, haywire kind of more and more. And, you know, in, in a way that, that then kind of like the fire swept down the mountain and, and into the into the university and eventually burnt a whole part of the campus that is a direct relation a direct indicator of climate change there's no like you know there's there's no way to get around that cape town is the canary in the climate change fire or climate change mine i mean um and you know and 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 this this is and and the 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 kind of the the U.S. and China are the two biggest players on, you know, on, in, in, in terms of holding back any kind of significant real kind of move in, in towards a, a, new, a new kind of energy dispensation that will help to get us out of this mess. Um, you know, so, yeah, you know, like I, I got kind of angry comments from, from some stakeholders on, on this issue, but you know what? 
Sorry. Like, this is true. This is true. I agree. Sorry. That's just the way it is. That is just the way it is. Uh, also, there's another opportunity. We've talked about FOCAC, but let's also talk about the what's called the Conference of the Parties, otherwise known as COP. This is the UN's Biodiversity Conference. Uh, it's going to be held in Kunming, China. And so that means that every time the Chinese hold these big international summits, they tend to be more sensitive to the issues related to the topic of that summit. So if you are an NGO or an activist and you want to bring up an issue, this is a good year to do it simply because they want to do everything to make sure that the summit goes off well. Yeah, just adding to that, like I mean, the one the one point that no one that no one is is that people have been hammering last year, but not so much this year, and it needs more attention. Is that that pangolin trade seems to have been an uh, you know kind of part of one of the like, seems to have been one of the factors that caused the outbreak of COVID um, in Wuhan originally. You know, so you know if 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 COVID can't get us to stop pangolin trade, then nothing will. The Chinese have taken action on pangolins, but it's been domestic pangolins. They have not done as much on the trade of international trade of pangolins. So we would like to see more action from the Chinese to halt the trade, much like they did with the ivory trade to actually crack down on imported pangolins. And pangolins are, of course, the most poached animal, poached mammal or animal, either one. Mammal. It's hard to believe that that scaly thing is a mammal, but they're so cute. But it's, it is shocking how they, they, they intercept tons and tons and tons of the scales. And you think how many of these beautiful animals had to die to fill up tons and tons of scales. I mean, it just, it makes your head spin. So unfortunately, I think COVID has made all of this worse and more complex. And is again, another point that you've talked about is the interaction between people, the environment, and these pandemics. That as the poverty increases, it forces people into places and to consume animals or to hunt that they shouldn't be doing that then then spreads more diseases. This is a point you've brought up on a number of occasions. Yeah, you know, it's it's just this kind of endless cycle that just kind of keeps getting worse and worse. So, so you know, and part, part of kind of getting us out of that is to rethink the very concept of development itself. Um, you know, and 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 to 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 kind of to factor to factor these kind of environments into a development paradigm. Um, because it's it's it, it makes no sense to tell simply tell countries to stop developing. I mean, that's that you will never happen. No, that's not going to happen. But the the movement worldwide to end wet markets, I think, is going to be very important. This was something that China failed miserably after the the SARS outbreak in Guangdong province back in two thousand three, and they made promises to to stop the wet markets, and then they cracked down on the wet markets, and then they just they didn't enforce it, and it, they gradually reappeared. And from what we can tell, is that COVID did emerge out of a wet market. That's as best as we know, as far as I know. And now, and wet markets are not unique to China. There's wet markets all throughout Africa, here in Vietnam. And I see that on the street. I mean, you see animals being slaughtered on the street. I see it here in Ho Chi Minh City and in, in rural Vietnam. And there, there's no refrigeration. And that's how these viruses make the jump. So when you have heat, people, and animals in proximity of one another, it just is a recipe for now in this pandemic era we live in for more problems. So I'm hoping that we will also learn from that, but again, not too optimistic because, well, people need to eat, obviously, and we need markets on getting food, but it's there's a lot to worry about here. So, okay, let's leave it there. Otherwise, I think you and I will need a drink and just to, <laughs> just to drown our sorrows on this. Uh, we... 
have made a promise to each other that we are going to do more sustainability, more environmental issues, and we're not going to let this be pushed to the side, even though there are so many other issues in the China Global South uh, agenda that we need to address. But this is among the most important. We also cover all of these details every day in our daily email newsletter. Almost all the points that I mentioned at the top of the show were stories from our newsletter. So if you want to stay on top of the minutia of every aspect of the sustainability debate, so for example, the fact that the House of Representatives in Nigeria passed this motion today, that's what goes in our newsletter. Very few other sources are covering that level of detail. But if you want to stay on top of it, go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Uh, enter the promo code podcast and you'll get a 20% discount. Try it free for 30 days. See if you like it. If you don't like it, you can cancel anytime. We hope that you'll like it. And again, if you have any questions whatsoever, feel free to just to reach out to Kobus or myself. You can reach me at eric, E-R-I-C, at chinaafricaproject.com or Kobus, C-O-B-U-S, at chinaafricaproject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Both Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobus at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>